0: Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus uh, chapter 4, we're going to read a few verses from Exodus chapter 4 to start, then we'll skip ahead a little bit in Exodus. We are going to be observing the Lord's Supper this morning, I think that this is a relevant passage for that. If you remember last week, and uh, in a, a couple weeks prior to that, we're looking at passages that um, present Jesus to us as the Son of God. And so far, we've looked at uh, some Old Testament passages that don't traditionally come up at Christmas. You know what happens at Christmas? We, you know, you know the the stories that that we tell, the verses that we read, the songs that we sing. Um, What happened with the coming of Jesus is the culmination of something huge, uh, something really big, and I think sometimes uh, we can get desensitized towards uh, the bigger picture of what's happening at Christmas. I think there's a lot of ways that this could happen. One way is we can just get kind of hearts of stone about the whole thing, and sometimes when I look out at, at the congregation when I'm preaching, I think I see hearts of stone, Just people who are just getting through the service. This does not make a difference to them. It doesn't matter much to them. Uh, If it did at one point, it doesn't seem to anymore. And they're not softened up at all by what what we read here. That's pretty tragic. Uh, That's a dangerous place to be. But I think that there's another kind of desensitizing that takes place as we fall into the routine of the stuff that we typically do around the holidays and we lose sight of the fact that, yes, the Son of God is being born, and yes, it's miraculous, and yes, what's happening is amazing, but this is the focal point and the culmination of, of a story that is thousands of years old. And what we're trying to do, um, and this is really uh, you know, a few sermons left here before Christmas, what we're trying to do is draw that larger story into focus. And so last week we were in Genesis we're looking at the story of, of Abraham and Isaac, and seeing how it foretells uh, the giving of one's only son as a sacrifice for sin, uh, to stand in, in place of, of of the sins of a people. And now we skip ahead to Exodus, and we find this theme of a firstborn son of a son continues to come into play. Now, if you don't know much about Bible, specifically the Old Testament, you might struggle to see how this is connected at all to Genesis chapter 22 and what we read last week, because these might just be names to you, Abraham, this week, Moses. But you have to understand the promise that God made to Abraham. And the promise that God makes to Abraham is that in your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed, which is a pretty remarkable promise to make. I mean, I have offspring, no one would, would make an absurd promise like that to me, okay? Uh, I hope that my offspring are a blessing to some small group of people from one nation, <laughs> you, know, I, it, you know, maybe multiple nations, but that would be pretty incredible, because I am my father's son, and I have not been a blessing to multiple nations, pretty much just a real small group of people in one nation, and that's about the extent of the reach, So this promise that God makes to Abraham, in your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed, is tied towards the promise that God makes of what we'll see when we get to heaven, which is peoples from every nation, tribe, and tongue whom God has saved by the work of His Son, Jesus, out of destruction and eternal condemnation into His kingdom eternally. Those promises are one and the same from two different perspectives. And the reason God is making that promise to Abraham is because from the line of Abraham, we will get the birth of Jesus Christ and the Messiah. So Abraham's line, the people that would come from him that would be called Israel, were in fact carrying along the DNA that would make up the fulfillment of God's promise in Jesus Christ. And this God, man, Jesus, fully God, fully man, would be the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that in his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And, and we see glimpses of that as Abraham goes to present Isaac as a burnt offering in a mountain in the land of Moriah last week, and we see another side of it now in a story that we often don't associate with any of that at all here in Exodus. And so the reason we're in chapter 4 is because I just want to read a couple of verses. Now you know the story of Exodus, and you know it traditionally starts, you know, with Moses growing up in Pharaoh's house, then fleeing and he's a shepherd in Midian for a long time, and then you know that he stands before a burning bush. Moses is an 80-year-old man when he stands before a burning bush and God tells him that he's going to go back to Egypt and free his people Israel. We know that, but we don't often read that story summarized here in chapter 4. Now, chapter 4, Moses has gone back to tell his father-in-law, Jethro. I've yet to see anyone name their son after that guy, you know, but that would be a good... I'm all for that. If any of you have a child upcoming, you want to call him Jethro, let me know, okay? I, I want to be there when that kid's born. But Moses goes back to tell Jethro his father-in-law, that he is going to go and accomplish this mission. And this is his last kind of parting words with Jethro. Uh, he's going to go back and, he, you know, he knows what God has promised, but this is an intimidating thing. Go back to Egypt and speak these things before Pharaoh. Put your life on the line. It's intimidating. So this is like a, a goodbye, so to speak. And then we get this summary of what Moses is going to do. From This is verse 19 of Exodus chapter 4. Now listen to this. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Remember, Moses did not leave Egypt at 40 years old on good terms. Okay. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. Israel is my son. My firstborn. So I say to you. Let my son go, that will kill, serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now, that is not the cartoon version that Disney depicted of the story, is it? Moses goes back and he says, Let my people go, right? That's not inaccurate. Moses said that. But this is far more than God saving a people. This is God preserving a promise. When God looked at Israel, he did not see a bunch of pagan idol worshippers slaving away in Egypt. He saw the people through which his firstborn son, Jesus Christ, would enter the world and fulfill these promises. And he speaks those words specifically to Pharaoh, and I have to be honest, and you should be honest about this too. This is a little uncomfortable. For a couple of reasons. First, it tells us that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that all of the plagues upon Egypt will be inflicted. That's uncomfortable. Then it says... Israel is my son, my firstborn, so I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. Which, if you don't know the story, we'll discover it this morning, that is the tenth plague on Egypt, the death of the firstborn. And there is no way to put together... The first part of that verse, which speaks of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and the latter part of the verse, which speaks of God's judgment, and not feel uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to me. I am uncomfortable with it because I am uncomfortable with what the Bible says about sin and judgment. I am a sinner. I don't want to be judged. I don't want to see other people judged. I am uncomfortable with what the Bible says about a God who judges. It doesn't feel good. It feels scary. God is not uncomfortable about judging sin. And if you're going to come face to face with the God of Israel, that's where you have to start. This is the second book of the Bible, and we are dealing with God's promise to judge sin and his right to do so. I look at Pharaoh, and I almost think, poor guy. That makes me uncomfortable, and he sees a sinner deserving of judgment. That makes me uncomfortable. Do you know why? Because in my heart, I don't want to think that God looks at me and sees a sinner deserving of judgment. I don't want to think about that. And so the way that we deal with this uncomfortability is often in our heads when we read this story and Egypt is being hit with plague after plague after plague, we deal with that by saying, okay, well, Egypt are the bad guys and Israel are the good guys. So that takes the edge off of what's happening a little bit because, you know, the bad guys are getting what they deserve and the good guys are getting rescued. And that makes me feel less uncomfortable about what's happening. Like if you watch a, you know, a a Rambo movie or something like that, you know, I feel less uncomfortable when I think these are the real bad guys. I'm not advocating that you go home and watch Rambo, by the way, but it's on my mind a certain young man and I have been talking about Rambo here for the last a you know, few days. Inside joke. But if you watch something that involves the judgment and destruction of a people, it helps if you can see the people being destroyed as the bad guys and the people being spared as the good guys. So, is this story about Moses the good guy versus Pharaoh the bad guy? Is this story about Israel, the good guys, and the Egyptians, the bad guys? It's not. Moses did not and does not deserve any better than Pharaoh. And to illustrate that point, if you'll just read the next verse, in verse 24, "...and it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him." That's Moses. Why? Because Moses had sinned and refused to do what God had told him to do with the circumcision of his son. So is Moses the good guy and Pharaoh is the bad guy? No. This is not a story about God saving good guys and destroying bad guys. This is a story that is meant to remind us we are all bad guys. And that's not comfortable to think about. It is biblical. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all includes you. That's why you shouldn't sit there with the heart of stone. Feeling impenetrable towards God's word. Because you are a sinner and you deserve eternal hell. You deserve judgment. Your sin is not much different from my sin. I deserve hell. The lies that I tell, they're on my record before God. My desires on a record before God. My blasphemies, my selfishness on a record before God. You cannot get what's being said here unless you come to grips with the fact that you are the bad guy. There is no good guy, save one. And that's what this story is really about that there is only one good guy. And the good guy lays down his life to save bad guys. Now, turn with me and let's watch... I want to watch the story play out here, okay? Uh, Turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. We're going to do some reading this morning. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You are guilty. God is offering you life. Exodus chapter 11. Now, chapter 11 skips ahead to the 10th plague. Ten times we've been told that Pharaoh has hardened his own heart, and ten times we've been told that God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. There is a joint cooperation happening here as Egypt experiences these plagues. Pharaoh is not a good guy. He is hardening his own heart and refusing to listen what God is saying, and God is not letting him off the hook. He is enforcing the evil inclinations of Pharaoh by refusing to change his heart and life as he changes all of ours. And there has been plague after plague after plague. The ninth plague here was darkness over the land. Darkness in a way that you and I cannot relate to. Darkness in a a suffering way that we can't relate to. And we get to chapter 11. And it says, And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. They had seen enough from God. They were ready to get Israel out of there if only their king Pharaoh would relent and send them away. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue, against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. That's our only salvation, right there that God makes a difference between those He saves and those who deserve destruction. And all these, this is still Moses talking to Pharaoh, all these your servants shall come down to me. Pharaoh's servants are going to go to Moses and bow down to me saying, get out and all the people who follow you. After that, Moses again telling Pharaoh, after that, Pharaoh, I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh. What does your Bible say? In great anger is what mine says. Moses was angry. I don't think Moses wanted to see the Egyptians go through this. It makes me uncomfortable to read about it. I don't think it made Moses real comfortable either. Moses is the instrument of God, and people are dying. And all Pharaoh has to do is let him go. And even as God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. He doesn't want to hear that his people are going to bow down. He doesn't want to hear about this. And Moses goes out in fury. And verse 9 says, But the Lord spoke to Moses, God is going to speak to Moses' anger. Now listen to what God says. This is long. Listen. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Those wonders are wonders of judgment. God, with Egypt, was making a demonstration of judgment against sin, judgment against rebelling against him, judgment against refusing to honor him. When you look at Egypt, you shouldn't see the bad guys, you should see us. God reserves the right to judge sin, and he does what he did in Egypt, in a nation again he does what he did in Egypt to make a demonstration of his fury against sin And you can look at God and you say well I don't like that no kidding sinner no kidding you not liking it doesn't change the fact that you are going to meet God face to face and give an account for your life And your sin condemns you just like it condemned Pharaoh. Now listen. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. God is not bashful about this. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying. This month shall be your beginning of months. This is going to be a new calendar for you. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. Now, if you're a Christian and you know the Bible, that should ring bells off in your mind. You should hear John the Baptist pointing to Jesus Christ and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is... Long before that. But this is God laying the foundation for what John the Baptist would say one of the thousand years later when John points at Jesus and says, behold, this is the Lamb of God. Before the Lamb of God, Israel was told to take a lamb for themselves. Every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Now, this is important because in the other sacrifices that you'll see develop in the law of God, whenever someone can't afford a particular sacrifice, there's a lesser sacrifice available to them. If you can't offer an oxen to God, you could get a pigeon. If you, there, there, are, there are options to be made affordable to the poor because the focus is not on the animals. The focus is on the sacrifice for sin. But with this one, there is no other option. It is a lamb. And if Clayton can't afford a lamb, he can go into it with James And they can observe this together, one lamb, all the households, both households gathered together, but it's going to be a lamb because this is pointing towards a lamb. This is a specific sacrifice, looking forward to a specific sacrifice, and that sacrifice is going to be connected with this judgment that God is performing. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish as Jesus was. A male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So you take the lamb, you choose the lamb on the 10th day for your household. You keep it until the 14th day. Let me ask you, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? Well, you're taking it for your household. So you don't just want, it's not just wandering around with the herd. You select the lamb on the 10th day, you keep it in and among your household for the week until the 14th day. Your kids see the lamb. You know how kids are with little animals. This is a one year lamb, they pet them. They play with them. You don't let the lamb starve to death. They feed them. They care for the lamb. Because the lamb is to be loved and cared for. The lamb is precious. You can't look at a little baby lamb and say, Well, it's not precious. You're not supposed to be callous towards little creatures like that. Jesus would enter into Jerusalem on the day of the Lamb's selection. The triumphal entry is on Lamb Selection Day, the 10th of the month. He entered as they raised the palm branches and said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He entered through the sheep gate. This symbology of what was happening was not lost on the people. Jesus, the Lamb of God, entered into Jerusalem where he stayed and ministered and served in the city during the week of the Passover until the 14th day of the month. And on the 14th day, verse 6, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat. The vertical and horizontal beams will be covered with blood on the 14th day of the month. Why? What was this covering to do? Verse 8, then they shall eat the flesh on that night, Roasted in fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire. Remember last week and the burnt offering? Now, when my wife cooks meat, sometimes, you know, just put it in the oven, but usually there's more preparation, you know. Soak it in water, in a crock pot, under pressure, or something like that. No, this is a roasted, a burnt, this is a fire-consumed offering. And if you missed the significance of that, you weren't paying attention last week. You weren't paying attention. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning... And what remains of it, until morning you shall burn with fire. You know, you eat the portion of the lamb that cooks and you're supposed to eat. Everything else gets consumed by fire. Why? Because this is a burnt offering offered for sin. That's not what it's called here, but that's what it is. Hebrews tells us that that's what Jesus is for us. The Lamb of God, who on the 14th of Nisan was crucified and His blood put on the horizontal and vertical beams as all of Israel gathered to congregate to kill it. Jesus was our burnt offering. Thus you shall eat it. With a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. What an odd thing to call this. But we get an explanation. Why are we calling it a Passover? Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. That is a frightening thing. When a holy God moves through the land of sinful and defiled people, it is a frightening thing. Most people get this wrong. And they think of God as some like grandfather figure in the sky. Big white beard. Like Santa Claus. And he exists to make our lives easier. And to hang out up there whenever we throw a prayer in his direction. And they have no concept of a holy God who will judge sin. Who can't stand sin. Who can't stand lying. Who can't stand immorality who can't allow it into His presence. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That is atonement. The word atonement means a covering. And when the Lord passed through Egypt and He saw the blood of the Lamb over the doorways, the crossbeam, and the posts of a household, He saw that blood of that innocent Lamb as a covering for the people inside. And he passed over judgment. They did not get. What is the just outcome. Of sinners. In the presence of a holy God. What is the just outcome. When the worst of criminals appears before a righteous judge. Condemnation is the just outcome. But God would see the blood of an innocent lamb and choose to pass over it. It would be a covering for those inside. It would be atonement. Verse 14. It's not a one-time event for Israel. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Forever and ever you will remember this is what God's saying. Verse 24, skip ahead. You shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as He promised, that there you shall keep the service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? What do you mean by this thing that we're doing here? that you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where there was not one dead. That great cry is a picture of hell. There are people who, obe- there are no good guys in this story. There are people who obey God by faith, and the Lord passes over judgment because he makes an atonement for them, a covering for them. Now, you could hear this, and you would rightly begin to associate God with two different things. Both judgment and salvation and that's what this story is really about when you think of God you're supposed to think of judgment and salvation both things but when you think of God's son Israel you're only called to think of one thing here as a Christian I want you to turn with me to John chapter 3 because this can be very confusing This dichotomy of a God who judges and a God who saves can be very confusing. It can be difficult. And I just want to read the words of Jesus from John chapter 3. This was difficult for Jesus' disciples. It must have been difficult for Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And yet, John 3.16 is a famous verse in the Bible. But listen to God explain this Dichotomy, this contrast of a God who judges and a God who saves. Now listen, verse 16 of John 3. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's Exodus, that's Genesis, that's what we've been reading about. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world, that's Christmas, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. Just like the Israelite who believed God and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and on the lintel, the threshold. He who believes is not condemned. Why? Because they're better than the other people? No. No. Because they believed God, and they trusted God, and they obeyed Him in the hopes of God fulfilling His promise to spare them from judgment. In Israel's case, to bring them into a promised land and out of slavery. In our case, to bring us out of a world of suffering and into everlasting life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. And this is the point. There are no good guys apart from God's salvation. The world, Egypt, Israel, you, me, condemned already. Not condemned because of Jesus. Condemned, period, apart from Jesus. Why? Because of Genesis 3. Because of the way you talk to your wife. Because of the lies you tell to your people. Because of your sexual sin. Because of your violent sin. Because of your selfishness. Because of your greed. Because of your envy. Because of your covetousness. Condemned. This is not who God created you to be. If you go to creation... God created people to be his image bearers in creation. The imago Dei, the image of God. This is not it. Stepping on people to get ahead, manipulating people, and always thinking about what we can do for ourselves. This is not it. God did not send Jesus into the world to orchestrate a scenario whereby believing in Jesus is salvation and disbelieving is condemnation. That's not what happened. We're all already in condemnation. Christmas is the execution of a rescue mission whereby God saves His enemies who deserve His judgment. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And it's not just the name, folks. It's what the name has done. It's what the name has promised. It's what Jesus has done at the cross for you. It's what Jesus has done in eternal life and resurrection. It's what he's promised you. And people don't believe that. They'd rather stay at the default state, which is condemnation. Do whatever the heck I want. Consequences don't matter. What God thinks don't matter. That's the default. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation. We say everybody is condemned already. Here it is. Here's what Jesus means by that. That light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The condemnation is every single time in your life you have chosen sin. Why? Because you liked it. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Why don't people get saved? They don't want to live a Christian life. They don't want to live what the Bible describes as honorably before God. Why? because they like their deeds. They like the way they live. Think about it. What's so hard about living a Christian life? What's so terrible and awful about it? You have to work not to sin. You have to, you have to practice repentance. You get to serve the Lord and among His people. You get a family of believers who care about you. You get forgiveness from God the Father. You get the blessings from His Word. You get wisdom from God on ways that will protect your life from destruction and your marriage and your your friendships and your relationships that will help you with your kids and all. What's not to like? Seriously, what is so bad about the way that we Christian people live our lives that the world would look at it and say, I don't want any of that. I'll tell you what's so bad. You have to give up deeds and actions and a way of living that you don't want to give up. And that's the condemnation. That people don't want to come into that life. Because the deeds are evil and they want to live however they want to live. And they don't want any of that to be exposed to anybody. But he who does the truth comes to the light. That his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. That's what happens after salvation. God takes His enemies, and He transforms them into the image of His Son. God takes criminals, and He rehabilitates them. He changes who they are, and it doesn't happen overnight. The legal forgiveness of sin happens like that, but the transformation is a lifetime of learning and growing, and that's why your heart can't get hard sitting there listening to God's Word. This has to matter. What we do here has to matter more than just attendance. I was there on Sunday. More than just, I'm glad my kids heard that. No. This has to matter to you. This is not something that you do until my kids are grown up and then we don't need it anymore. This is not something that you do until you get a certain threshold level of good deeds and you can feel good about who you are. This is about serving God because it's who He's transformed you to be as a person. And that's only possible because of Jesus. Now we're going to observe the Lord's Supper here. And as we observe the Lord's Supper, this is the extension of what we read about in Exodus 4. Exodus 4. Looks forward and remembers the blood that was shed in Egypt as a foreshadowing of the blood that was shed at the cross. And I hope we do it seriously and well.